This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. All right, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow. You know, guys, it's no secret we're facing a technician shortage, and Napa Auto Care is addressing that. The free two-year apprentice program offers a variety of training to produce a technician with three ASC certifications. To learn more, members can visit member.napaautocare.com. And today, I have a very special guest. Very excited to bring him on. He is a high school friend of mine. Uh, We go back, I think we met in sixth grade through a mutual friend and uh, graduated high school together, have continued uh, a close friendship the whole time. I don't know about after this, depends on what he says, if that'll continue, but (laughs) I've been very close friends all the way since high school or even middle school, if you will. He is a uh, primary uh, school teacher, mainly first grade, uh, award-winning at that. And his name is Scott Alton. I'm very excited to have him on. Well, I'm really honored to be here, Matt. Yeah, I think you really summed it up there that uh, we got together sixth grade-ish and... You know, we've continued this some 30 years, and I think what's really great about, you know, the connection we have is that we listen and talk a lot, and we have much different viewpoints and ways we get at things, but the conversations usually usually are pretty, you know, normal conversations in that they don't devolve into, I'm never talking to you again. I think we actually listen to each other, which is a big step for people, right? You know, I think you are the perfect person to do a podcast because one thing that I know about Matt is that he loves to play devil's advocate and you don't always get to, you don't see that or hear that a lot these days is just listen to a point of view and think about it before you respond, right? Civil discourse is scarce. Right. Very, very scarce. Yeah, so I'm really honored to be uh, asked to be a part of your podcast. Hear his real feelings about things until you've had the discussion. I think one thing that he also is uh, really good at is doing some research on a topic before he just jumps in. So he's usually well-read and has a lot to say about things and likes to have multiple points of view, not just his point of view. He's willing to listen, and that's uh, pretty rare these days as well. Yeah, I know. And three minutes in, everybody now knows I paid you to be on, so Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Get my money's worth out of this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a rough Christmas, that's for sure. I I needed to somehow make up that money I spent. When I ran this by a few people having you on, it's odd for me, but I will ask... Anyways, because I know there is interest, as kind of crazy as I find that. What are your memories of me in high school? Because I think I have this, you know, almost projection of my digital self. You know, if I was going to steal something from the Matrix, like I have this idea that I think, you know, who or what I was. But now now the truth needs to come out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think. be honest. Yeah, one of the things that really, that I think a lot of people would say, just casual Matt Fonslow fans, they would say, he's got a photographic memory. 
So one thing that really, like he said, sixth grade, he could probably tell me which class and which teacher and what we talked about the first time we met. I think that's one thing that kind of separates Matt from a lot of people is that he holds on to everything. And he doesn't, he doesn't let those things go. It's up there somewhere all the time and he can recall it very easily. So that was something that was really striking to me for Matt in high school. Like if I wanted to know about karate or if I wanted to know about basketball or if I wanted to know about wrestling or something like that, Matt had all these statistics in his mind, right? So he would be able to recall those and it was like having a subscription to something uh, and I could just have like an early version of Google that I could just have this recall all the time, which was, you know, amazing throughout high school. And he, he carries that forward. So on uh, another part of that too, though, was Matt is genuine. And Matt, when I think about Matt and his upbringing, growing up in the country with parents who, you know, were Uh, I'm not sure if your listeners know that your parents, especially your dad and your grandfather, ran an implement that sold, you know, tractors and but also serviced chainsaws and things like that. So that mechanical aptitude, I think, showed itself really early and that you kind of took up that. And so as a kid myself who grew up in the country, I kind of gravitated towards that. And I know our dads knew each other a little bit as well. But when I say genuine, it's a genuine respect and caring for friendships. And that's one thing that he's carried forward as well, is that when you are a friend of Matt, you he will do whatever needs to be done to help you out. And I think that probably comes from your upbringing, right? Like your, your family looked out for family. And so I feel I'm actually an extension of your family in that way, is that you've given me that friendship all along that a family would give me like the support. So those are a couple of things that I remember in high school. I also remember that you were a great JV basketball player. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think, I think I let my, I don't know if it was ego so much. I, part of it was ego, but part of it was just assumptions run things more than just enjoying myself. I think that those are my memories of basketball after about ninth grade was just, almost like a belief in a conspiracy theory that I should have just ignored and went out and played and enjoyed myself. But I didn't. Boy, I'm, getting, I'm really getting my bang, bang for my buck on this. This is great. But yeah, you're right. My parents, you know, I would never tell them to their face, had a tremendous effect uh, on me with that. And family stuff, like family drama, I didn't know what that was until I got married. And that's not to just talk smack uh, about my ex or anything. It's just really the truth. And it wasn't just like my parents and our you know nuclear family. It was both sides, my mom's extended family, my dad's extended family. Like I had one aunt and uncle that were divorced and they're at every holiday together. They maybe came separately. No drama, none. And, so yeah, that I think had a profound effect on me. And yeah, we sixth grade I was in Mr. Seifert's class with Tony Eichenlob. He's the now author, fiction author. Uh, you can buy his books on Amazon. Uh, introduced us, and you were in Mrs. Nelson's 
class, um, homeroom class, or, yeah. And uh, yeah, you were wearing a red sweatshirt. You think I'm making this crap up, but it's the truth. You were wearing a red sweatshirt, and Tony introduces us, and you start talking to me in an Australian accent. And I think this might even be before Crocodile Dundee, or maybe in and around that time. But yeah, had an Australian accent, or yeah, Australian accent, and <laughs> that's how we met. Yeah, and uh, ends up almost kindred spirits. Similar appreciation for music. I think later on in middle school, high school, I started going more uh, into heavier music. But for a while there, uh, I think we had a, a shared appreciation, at least, of like more golden oldies in the 80s type music and uh, a little bit of, I don't know if you would call it, would you call it dance music? Well, like, a technotronic is definitely dance music. Electronic dance music, yes. Yeah, that would have been definitely... So Technotronic would have been Cicero, 7th, 8th grade. Yeah. And that was really popular. I think MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This Video is played every 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I think we were probably the only two people that had the Young MC tape that we had to buy at least two or three times because we wore it out but the well yeah at the time you had a your your um boombox allowed for recording that would shut the microphone off so that you could do tape to tape recordings and it would come off really clean and i remember it was a, and i didn't understand that at the time because i remember at a, a party at your house we're playing Super, or not Super Nintendo, Nintendo, and the game was Silver Surfer. And I sucked at video games because the only time we ever got to play video games was when we rented a Nintendo. And you guys were just so light years ahead of me. Uh, it was ridiculous. You guys almost would feel sorry for me, let me play for a few minutes, and then gouge your eyes out and take the controller back and ban me uh, from touching it. But the Run DMC Aerosmith walked this way. And that I think that's like the that hub where I started turning more and more into the heavier music. As odd as that may sound, that's kind of what started it. And then, you know, Metallica, Megadeth. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing about Matt, too, is that he's a connector and that he he crosses genres, not just in music, but something about our group in high school was... Uh, genre breaking, right? Like the yeah. people that we hung out with weren't just jocks or they weren't just, we were kind of the misfit toys, right? And we all came together. Some of them were in into Metallica. Some of them were in band. Some of them were, you know, the AV club. And, you know, it, were, it just was this, this really good mix of different people that came together, you know, and it would be really interesting to get everybody back together again because i think it would really you'd really see the differences we had back then weren't weren't as they weren't as in focus and and we were more accepting of each other but yeah i think for matt he crosses a lot of genres like he can get into a lot of different people and situations and so i think that's a really good talent and a really interesting thing that matt has is he can kind of cross over if you will into a lot of different categories of people and ideas and things like that. And I think that's why 
you know, he's the perfect choice for this kind of a venue or a, a way to figure out the side of your business from A to Z because there are yeah. so many sides to it, right? Yeah, yeah. Not to keep lingering on the subject, but there was one <laughs> one interesting connector for all of us, the misfit toys, if you will. We were a group of friends. We did. We hung out with each other. We hung out at school, out of school, stuff like that. I mean, the one thing that connected all of us was <laughs> was Euchre. In high school, we all we had one friend who was uh, okay. We we had a couple of friends, but specifically Ross was a very very smart person, very smart guy, very uh, studious, and he was a tutor. So we turned out all of us, or not all, but a, a very large number of us had study hall at the same hour. So we all decided we needed tutor in whatever class, but I think we all picked math and some of us didn't even have math classes, but we got a math tutor and we went up to the study hall room for our tutoring and it broke into three, four different Euchre games going on at once. Seventh hour study hall and it was most of our, you know, junior, senior years in high school, there was probably 12 to 14 of us that would get passes from Ross because Ross had this big <laughs> book of passes that he could write out. And so we'd start the day with a pass from Ross for seventh hour study hall. And we would go down and yep, that was, that was the Euchre room. And I think it actually really strengthened not only our math skills, because it was a math, you know, there's there's numbers on cards, probability, <laughs> yeah. and... Strategy, a lot of strategy. strategy. Yep, there's a lot to be gained from Euchre. And I think Ross should really hang his hat on that and be proud of his... The way he helped 12 to 14 people really master Euchre. It's true. So, one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on was, I feel like you could be a really, really good communicator to everybody, inclu including me, about the experience of being on the other side of the counter. And I, I think you're in an interesting spot because uh, we're friends. So in some, in some ways, you're tainted almost with knowledge because you get a lot of behind-the-scenes information. But you, there's years before that and then experiences elsewhere, just good and bad, but also very much living that, experiencing that consumer side of things. And th this will sound like a knock, and I, I don't mean it as not derogatory at any level. The mechanical knowledge is not, you know, what I think a lot of people associate with, you know, this the men thing, right? Sometimes we have uh, women clients talking about like, you know, you might have to talk to my husband or, you know, I'm not a man. I don't understand these things. And it's like, okay, just your lower testosterone levels don't make you less, you know, predisposed to understanding all these mechanical things. Like, no, no, that has nothing to do with it. So I just, I feel like your perspective is very, it's very interesting to me. Well, yeah, and I think that's a great um, entry point because, you know, we were talking about your grandfather, your father, and now you are carrying on that mechanical tradition, right? Or that you had shown interest in it yourself and you're 
kind of making that into your profession now. It may not be at the implement where your father and grandfather were, but I'm the exact opposite, right? So my dad was a truck driver for about 30 years, and he considers himself a shade tree mechanic, whatever that means. I'm not exactly sure what he means when he says that, but he would he's from that generation. He's 72 uh, years old, and so he's from that generation that grew up as a gearhead, right? And he would take apart his car, put together his car, improve it if he could, and he would do all the work himself because he could. And I remember times when he would be outside on Christmas Eve having to work on his semi so that he could go out the next day and make money for us, right? So he would be out there for two and a half, three hours. He'd be, you know, have all of his tools laid out and stuff like that. And for me personally, that was torture. Like he'd have me there trying to explain this and that and all these different pieces of it. I I had no, like my mechanical sense is not great. So if I really wanted to put my mind to it, I probably could muddle through it, but I've never had that real desire to do it. A different uh, profession than my father did, right? Like I wasn't interested in the mechanical aspects of even around the house. I'm not like a handyman. You know, if I have to put up uh, some kind of a light fixture or something, I it, it's it's not my favorite thing to do. So, you know, when we think about the car industry, then I was, I was really thinking about this as an entry point that you were talking about wanting my perspective. And so when I go to a repair shop, I'm really a virgin, right? Like I, I don't know what's going on, but then I thought of that as a a more broad picture or meta kind of thing, right? And I think that's really what is a, a big stumbling point for a lot of people when they go into a repair shop. They don't have any clue as to what is going on there, right? They don't have, they know that something's wrong with their car. And it's just like if you go into the doctor and you know something's wrong, but they have all these medical books up on the shelf with all this, you know, specific language for that profession, right? And you guys have the same thing. You have all this technical knowledge that you have of your profession. And that's the first uh, stumbling block for a lot of us going in, right? When we hear that something's wrong with a piston, we don't even understand what a piston does, right? Or if we hear something's wrong with a muffler or the exhaust system, right? There's all these things that I think that's the first thing that's really intimidating to a lot of people when they go into a repair shop they already know they are novices at best, right? Like we're, I'm a novice. And going back to my dad, he, he knows he can't really work on his cars anymore. And that's also frustrating for him, right? Is that the way cars are designed now has kind of taken that, that love that he had for being able to work on something and kind of taken it away from him in some ways because it's not as simple as it was, right? Now it's more complex. And when you mix complex and you feel like you're not, you don't understand something about it, I think that's really a point where people get frustrated or can easily get intimidated going into a shop. That's a really good point. Yeah, something you used to always be able to do. At least accessible. Maybe easy wasn't the right word, but it was accessible. And that's gone and on a lot of different things. And 
like you said, complexity, and there's so many more systems involved. You know, before to make the car go down the road, there was only so many systems involved. And now there's more and more and more. And they're not just, there's not just more, they're integrated in a way that never before. You know, so the radio gets louder the faster you drive. So now we got networks involved. And it might be a super quote unquote simple network, but there was no networks before. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, I guess depending on car lines and stuff like that, but most part, for the most part, the vehicles you're talking about him servicing, they, they were non-existent or at least not important for letting the car go down the road safely, you know, having power to, to go brakes to stop and gears shifting. There was no network. Yeah. An example I have just in my own experience within the last couple of months is changing a headlight. Changing a headlight in my car, I I noticed that a headlight was out. You think about how easy it is to change a light bulb in your house, right? You just unscrew it, screw it back in, you're good to go. But then when it came time for me to do the headlight, I, I stopped into a quick oil quick change place, right? Because I thought, well, I, I, I'll just have them throw one in, right? And they said, we're out of stock on that particular light bulb. But if you get it at Walmart, we can bring it back in for you. And if you bring it back in, we'll change it for you. And I thought, well, how hard can this be, right? Like, I'll get it at Walmart, I'll take it to my house, and I'll just change it. And I found that it took me about 40 minutes to change both headlights because First, I had to find them. I had to unclip the things. I had to pull the things out. And then, you know, there's a special, it's not just a flathead or a Phillips. You have to have like some kind of little diamond shaped kind of thing or whatever to kind of unscore some of it. Yeah. And so, you know, 40 minutes to change a light bulb on the car that that just and the compartment was really small to get my hand under and into that spot. And I think about the the light bulbs that my dad would have had to change on his 1970 uh, Plymouth or something like that, right? It would have just been pop it out, pop it back in. It would have been simple. But nowadays, even changing a light bulb on a car is is a task. Hey, guys. Matt here talking to you about what the Napa Auto Care Center program can do for your business. You probably already know the Napa brand is the most recognized and trusted name in the automotive aftermarket industry. In fact, studies show nearly 95% of customers recognize Napa and associate it with quality parts, service, and technical expertise. So why not complete a ProImage upgrade and take advantage of that? ProImage is a co-branding program for the exterior and interior of your shop. On the outside, it includes the Napa colors and distinctive Napa signage. While the public may know you as a reliable, locally-owned business, a ProImage upgrade helps set your shop apart from the competition even further. It is also a visual signal to your customers and potential customers that you and Napa are partners. Most importantly, ProImage really works. This co-branding opportunity has helped Napa Auto Care Centers across the country increase their car counts and sales. In fact, those that have completed the ProImage project enjoy an average of 23% sales increase during their first year. ProImage upgrades are also available for the interior of your shop. A ProImage interior upgrade transforms your customer waiting area from merely utilitarian 
to warm and welcoming. The goal is to maintain your shop's independent identity while enhancing the customer's experience. You can get a free look at what a ProImage exterior or interior upgrade can look like by visiting the Napa Auto Care member site and clicking on the Napa ProImage link under the Napa ProImage tab. Or contact your local Napa Auto Parts store. Your servicing Napa store can tell you more about ProImage plus the hundreds of other reasons to become part of the Napa Auto Care family, the largest network of independent auto repair shops in the country. Some cars are better than others, but it's like some of these items that would be, I would be, I would like to consider maintenance or just regular might be a danger, not dangerous, but may not be the proper word, but you know, light bulbs are something that are going to go bad. They, they have a lifespan. You think you would make them accessible to be replaced, and that is not always the case. Some cars, absolutely. Some, it is brutal. Like, you do a lot of damage to your hands. And you know, I'm not saying, like, permanent damage, but, geez, you know, changing bulbs on some of these cars and then your hands cut up, it, it's... Yeah, they don't necessarily make it easy for anybody, professional or not. That was kind of an idea when you, when you were talking there about taking your car to different places. Is the assumption when you go into any repair shop that everybody there is qualified to do whatever task is on your vehicle? That's a good question. Ooh, I think if I drop, if I take my kids to school, like not just the school they're going to right now, but we up and move. We get sick of sub-zero weather in Minnesota, and we move further south. It's like Iowa. But we move. I take my kids to school, you know, register them. The the teachers there uh, assume, but with, I think, uh, good reason, they're all licensed. They're all certified to be educators. And I know I'm, I'm kind of glossing over things that we talk about all the time. Not sure at least this episode is the best for that discussion, but we assume the people there are credentialed and capable of being educators. And now if we flip that around where you're dropping your keys off at, doesn't matter what shop, Googled them or you just saw the sign. When you're handing the keys over, do you, do you suspect something very similar that whoever's driving that car into the bay and going to do something on it is capable, credentialed, competent. Yeah. I think that the word that comes to my mind there is perception, right? How you perceive the, just the business as a whole. And also the shop that you go into, like the perception you have of those, of those workers is, is usually formed within the first 10, 15 seconds, right? Like when you walk in the door, whether it's a school, it doesn't really matter what what we're talking about, right? But if you're talking about a service place and you walk in the door and they have their uniform on, it's tucked in and they're, you know, how you doing today? They take your keys, you tell them what's going on. They're, they're showing general interest versus I walk in, the person at the desk might look like they have some kind of, you know, not necessarily a suit, but just nice clothes on. But then the the guys that you see working on the cars have their shirts untucked or, you know, they're even, even down to their faces, right? Like their faces, if they aren't shaved or, 
you know, just look like they've had uh, a rough weekend or something. I think it's all about perception, right? When you go in, you're immediately looking for, do I trust this place? Do I think that this place looks like it's going to give me quality service? I think, and I think we run into that in a lot of places, right or wrong, because, you know, that's just kind of think how the human brain is wired, right? You're wired to take in information with your eyes and then you, you put it in your CD-ROM and it rolls around in there and, oh, these people look professional. <laughs> and if they look professional, you're going to feel more confident and trust them that they're going to be doing what you want to rather than going to, you know, Bob's repair and general store where they have, you know, they don't even have doors or something like that. And the, the workers just come out and they've got their, you know, like I said, their, their clothes untucked. And it's, it's all about perception in a lot of the cases. See, a bunch of questions pop into my brain when you're, when you're talking like that, because it's interesting. I mean, it is interesting. I keep saying that over and over. I got to find better, expand my vocabulary, I think. But we do kind of ask for a, a, like a new client, new customer who walks in to give us, just grant us immediately a certain level of trust. And then, granted, I think there's different means of helping build some of that trust before they hand the keys over before they decide to, you know, grant grant us or allow us the privilege uh, of servicing their vehicle and, and whatnot, solving their vehicle issues. That it may be in the, in the through some marketing. It might be really like reviews. Maybe in the older days, you would have uh, a spot on the wall somewhere that had cards that people would send. Maybe notes they wrote. And now almost everything's online where, you know, we may not have it posted on the wall, but before you brought your car to us, you saw we had, you know, X amount of positive reviews. You read some of the negative reviews and you liked the way we responded or they, whatever the shop that you're at, the way they responded to them builds a little bit more trust. But we still ask you to entrust us, give us some a certain level of trust right out of the gate. And that is not based on a bunch of credentials. Like we might throw up certificates, maybe diplomas, you know, education, maybe some training certificates that attended X amount of hours on this and that. We got some credentials with uh, ASE, which is not very well marketed by the profession. So the auto repair profession is not very good at marketing ASC. So you see that and it doesn't really mean anything other than maybe you see certified. So you think it's more on par with licensing and, yep. and it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's probably a much different conversation. It's got, it's really, really good points. The voluntary credentials, it's got its own pitfalls as well. But then so I'm asking you to give me a certain level of trust and you're looking at that stuff plus the snap decisions and stuff you recognize that speak to you, you know, well-kept uniforms. Do they look like they take this position and their job seriously and, and what services they're providing? And you're looking at that presentation. 
And then let's just say things go well over a period of time. Hopefully we're garnering more and more and more trust. I, I guess before jumping to the next question or, or driving this into that, how, how does that feel? Like now you've developed, I don't think, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone discuss this before from a customer's perspective. How does it feel to find that shop? You, you found your shop. I think we have, profession has the reputation of it's not so good, but now maybe you've found it and it doesn't have to involve my shop, just any shop that you've found that you're comfortable with. How, how does that feel? Yeah, I think when you were talking about the certifications on the wall, like I know when I've walked into shops that either they've put them in a place where the customers can see them. And I think about, um, I know the principal at my school has her accreditations up on the wall. I think about doctors, you know, they have their accreditations up on the wall. And I think that's, I don't know where that started, but obviously that's a way to foster that trust. Like we have people here that are taking it seriously. We have people here that have gone to school for this job, right? Um, so just on that point itself, I think that's one way that the shops that I've interacted with and been a part of, that's just something that my eyes gravitate towards, right? But, you know, when you talk about finding that place, I can, I can say, you know, in our circumstance, I trust that you <laughs> working at your shop, like the person that I know working at that shop is if I, if I know somebody at that shop, if I know them on a personal level, I'm much more likely to trust that the work that's going to be done is fair. And now that obviously is special in our case, right? Like we have, I have that as, so going into a shop, for example, where I work isn't anywhere close to your shop. So if I have car problems um, on my way to work. I have a 40-minute commute, and so if I, I see a light come on or something, I know I'm probably not going to try to drive it all the way 40 minutes back home because I'd like it. I'd like to find out what it is before I, you know, take it over that over that course. So there's a there's a shop that's close to me and my school that I will take it to, and you know, again, it, it's one of those things where I'm looking for I'm looking for it to you know, the person that's at the desk greets me. And I, I actually don't really, I don't want to say I don't care, but I don't really focus in on the techs in the back, right? I'm not focused in on them because I really don't have any, you know, they know their business more than I do. So I, I don't really need to interact with them necessarily. However, it, when you get the diagnosis, right, that's when I'm probably talking to the tech or probably the the manager or whoever at the desk is going to relay the message what the techs gave them, right? So that person, if that person's well-spoken, you know, and they, they are able to relay what has been found, here's what we're thinking, and they're clear and succinct, I think that's a really big piece of gaining that trust early on, right? Being open and honest with me and just saying that this is what we're finding. This is what we think it'll be. This is how much it's going to be. I think that's a huge piece of it because I was thinking about 
when when this discussion came up for us, I was thinking about the repair shop business in general, right, is closely linked with car sales, right? And I, I think about the perception of car salesmen, right? The perception of car salesmen for the longest time was, oh, I just don't want to deal with those guys, right? Those guys, when they see you pull into the lot, they're they're coming up to you and you're going to feel all this, yep, all this pressure and I just don't know what they're going to spin to me, right? They're, they're going to have all this spin that they're going to give to me. And so, you know, a used car salesman, unfortunately, is linked with your profession in a lot of ways, right? Like, you're going to give me all this spin, and I have to try to decide, do I trust that spin? Do I trust what you're telling me now? And, you know, when you go into the doctor, you can get a second or third opinion, that's a little harder when the thing you need to get you home is, you know, possibly debilitated and not able to get you home. You're in a place where you want to trust them. I know for me personally, I would love two or three different, you know, is this really what's wrong? And how do I trust that? You know? Yeah. It might be easier to get the multiple opinions from repair shops, but I think even if it was just as easy. So, you know, most medical systems, depending on where you live. So where we live, there's one medical system. There's not a bunch of different ones. I can't. So around us, Mayo Clinic pretty much dominates the landscape. At one time we had Fairview was another company. And then I think there's like Abbott is another one. I don't know. Like around here, I don't think there's anything related to John Hopkins or anything, but there's really one dominant medical system. But even if you could, you know, an auto repair shop, there's, you know, in our town, at least 20 places to take your car to get quote unquote fixed. And it would be easier to go bounce from shop to shop to get second opinion, third opinion. That's not very common. It's just not a, a common way of doing things. But in general, you don't do that. The brakes are squealing, drop the keys off and just kind of assume that or hope really that they're treating you right. And I suppose we could go on a tangent about what that means. That is going to get taken care of. You're probably not going to get a phone call saying, Hey, you know, we think it needs pads and rotors. I think I'll go for a second opinion. So could you throw the keys in it, charge me your inspection fee, and then I'm going to go to shop B what do you think? Oh, yeah, it just needs pads. And right there already, I think I just said something that's different than the medical system. Because even if you went from, in our in our case, I don't know about everyone else's, but in our case, if you would go from a Mayo to a Fairview, they're not throwing each other under the bus. You, you know, you're not going to end up going to Fairview and saying, God, you know, my throat. I, I was at Mayo. And they just told me I have a virus. Mayo, those guys, they're a bunch of idiots over at Mayo. We won't even hire guys from Mayo. Yeah, bottom of the barrel over there. We have certain criteria that have to be met to work here. That would never happen. They would probably either find out what the diagnosis was, or they would make their own diagnosis. And then if you said, well, Mayo said, they would backpedal or sidestep or whatever they could to make the entire 
professional, you know, make male look good too, or okay, or not inept in any way. Where if you were to take your car with the brakes squealing for a second opinion, so another repair shop, and you just let slip, hey man, I just headed over to Riverside. They told me it needs pads and rotors. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying they're wrong. I hear they're really good, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Immediately, you know, you're going to get a different answer. I guarantee you. And it's going to be slightly less. Or if it's more, if they look at it and they're like, no, you know what? The right, the quote unquote right way to fix this is to do more. So those, those jerks over there, they're taking advantage of you because they're underselling you because they don't want you know, you to think badly of them, but really the right way to fix this is to do all this extra work. And I, I'm not even insinuating they're wrong. That's not the point. The point is, is the fact that they would know that they're the second opinion is enough to skew the results that it immediately puts you in the middle of contention in that that sucks as a consumer that sucks because now you're caught who's being more honest and you're still feeling like i still don't have any technical knowledge of what they're talking about i mean i'm completely in the dark on i know that it has something to do with the wheel and probably the brake or the rotor but you know, I'm still in the dark, and so I'm counting on people that supposedly have all this technical knowledge to actually be forthright and tell me the honest truth on what I need to have done to my car. If you went and tried to do the research, if you found an honest outlet for that or provider of that information, you probably still are caught because if they're honest, they're going to say, the one might be telling you the bare minimum, and the other one might be telling you really the, the proper, quote-unquote, proper way. Or they could be the one, is, the one who's selling you the, you know, the least amount of parts is telling you exactly what you need done. The other one is overselling. And both could be possible. How do you know? How do you tell the difference? And then you, know, you may watch or read somebody that is very biased to overselling. So therefore you're going to assume the shop or tech or mechanic or what is taking advantage of you. And they're trying to sell you more to fatten up their, you know, their paycheck or the other way around where the other shop tech mechanic is lazy. They don't want to do it the right way. they just want to get their fast cash and get you in and out of the door as fast as possible so they can get the next car in and get it in and out. They're not interested in taking care of you, the customer, and looking for looking looking out for your long term long term experience or long term outcomes. They they just have no interest in that. And you're still stuck in the middle. Like you how do you make heads or tails of that? To me, that would suck. That would suck from both ends, literally. Yeah. I, th- I think also you, it's kind of a bigger picture of the trades too. I don't think this is just to car repair. I think if you really look at the trades, right, electricians, carpenters, plumbers, and then repairs, in a lot of ways you have the customer over a barrel, right? Because you, you can say this is what you need 
And then if you're in my case, right, in a lot of people's cases, if you don't have any knowledge of that trade, you're just going to go with what they say, right? And you're going to go with, oh, yeah, I need to have that part of uh, the plumbing in my house fixed. I'm going to trust you to give me a fair price. And I think, I think nowadays it's a lot easier to cross-check, right? Cross-check the and, and see if the what you're telling me is a fair price is going to be an honest price across the board, right? With a plumber or an electrician. You hope so. I get scared with that. Probably better nowadays, too, with repair shops. You know, I think it's probably more standardized where a lot of shops are probably charging something similar for the work, right? I, I'm, But even that I'm not sure about. Yeah, I think it's evolving more because their hand is being forced and not so much because of customers themselves, but because of the, the lack of influx of new techs. And we're losing our old veterans to retirement or our best and brightest are leaving for uh, greener pastures in totally different professions that use their same skill set. The Internet can be a double edged sword, just just like that scenario with the brakes where you could be caught in the middle. You don't really know who's being honest. It's all about that trust factor and then maybe who can demonstrate and even that falls apart. Like if I show you photos and I even take you to the car and show you like, this is why you need brake pads. And this is what they did to the rotors. And this is why I can't use your rotors again or resurface them in such a way. That this is why I can't, this is why we have to do these together. And then that second opinion, they're showing you again, the same thing I did. But now they're going one step further, like, hey, you know, your car has 200,000 miles on it. The brake calipers, you know, are starting to seize or we live uh, where we live. We got salt and sand and gravel and it's starting to really gum up these uh, moving parts. So really, you know, you plan on keeping the car the right way to do this is to do the pads, the rotors and the calipers. And both are very realistic sounding and how do you know and the same thing with looking up prices online where i i guess you know i'd have to mention riverside like i think we're kind of accepted as being quote unquote more expensive than most other repair shops in the area we have a higher labor rate and our markup on parts might be a little higher than most and then i would counter well Compared to the most, we have a longer warranty. And then, I mean, we're trying to take care of our employees as best we can with benefits and salaries and whatnot. And then the other thing is the equipment. That what kind of sets us apart is you can take your vehicle around to other shops and they're going to be able to do a lot of different things. But eventually you're going to hit a spot where they're going to be like, we can't do this. You're going to have to either go to the dealer or Riverside because they have the stuff to do it. Well, you just don't magically get the stuff, right? You pay for it. Well, one way to pay for it is, and then just the, the harsh reality is customers pay for everything. Everything in that building is paid for by our customers. And that doesn't matter 
if it's Riverside Automotive, McDonald's, Walmart, your favorite restaurant, the, the customers pay for everything. And so that, that comparing prices online gets kind of scary for me a little bit. But I think I think that what you're talking about with other trades is, is spot on. I'm thinking like, you know, okay, it's, I think, let me check quick. Actually, it's right on my computer screen. It's negative six degrees Fahrenheit right now, warmed up a little bit. A lot of furnaces are getting stressed out and they're failing. They're not keeping up. So you have the furnace tech, HVAC technician showing up. And you're going to have almost two different philosophies. One is your furnace is 20 years old. Is it worth spending X amount of dollars to fix it? Or we could replace it for this much. And maybe it's twice more, but you're, it's going to be higher efficiency. And you're going to have the other guy who's going like, okay, yeah, the new furnace will be more efficient. This is, you know, an 80% or an 85%, 90% efficient furnace. And the new ones are in, you know, the high 90s, mid to high 90s. However, at the cost of propane, natural gas, whatever you're burning, the time it would take you to recoup the costs of the repair, it, it would be 50 years from now. You Then you would finally justify replacing this new one. So this is a good unit. It's been, they haven't really even changed it so much over the years. They've just tweaked things here and there and made it more efficient and this, that, and the other. So fixing this makes a lot of sense. And it's the same thing, right? You got somebody, you know, like you said, he's dr- he or she is dressed nice. You got the professional looking van, great reviews. You should replace that furnace. Save you a lot of money every year because it's so much more efficient. And then you got the next second uh, opinion going like, yeah, you're, they're absolutely right. It's more efficient. The new one will be more efficient. So what? Here's the average cost you're going to save per year. This is how much it's going to be to repair it versus replacing it. Are you, are you going to be around here for another 50 years? I'm not sure I'll be alive in 50 years. I got the parts in the van. We can fix it right now. There you sit. Both are arguably reasonable. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to how much how much faith do I have in this person uh, that's that's guiding me, right? So in your case, it's interesting that you bring up Riverside and more expensive. Because I actually got that from my mom the other day when she was talking about her car, right? And, you know, she she knows that I come to Riverside because you're obviously my best friend and we I trust you and therefore I trust your business. And she has a guy in town that has a smaller shop that she trusts. And so that's where she's taken it because, as she said, they're more expensive, right? And I tried to explain to her here's why Riverside is more expensive, right? But I wasn't as eloquent as you are in <laughs> trying, to, trying to describe or, or give the reasons. But And also your shop is bigger and has, you know, I would say, I, I'm not sure how you would describe it, as yours probably like a modest or a medium-sized 
operation. I wouldn't call you a giant operation, but you're also not just a mom and pop. So in the grand scheme of things, I would say medium. Yeah. Around Red Wing, probably more the larger. Mm -hmm. In this case, when it comes to auto repair shops, larger, like physically larger shops aren't necessarily by default more expensive. I heard, I was watching an episode of Garage Rehab. And if I didn't like my TV so much, I would have thrown something at it. I was livid, livid over this because they're on freaking TV. People are going to listen to them and take them seriously. Like, oh, they know what they're talking about. They got their own reality show. Yeah. What he said was delusional that, you know, we're here to save you money so that, you know, and this is one of the, the, the people that help rehab these garages, save these repair shops. And um, he basically says, you know, this is the small shop. These are the guys you want to save because, you know, they don't have this huge overhead. So they're not going to overcharge you. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. In this case, for all you know, the bigger shop, physically bigger shop is more efficient because of its size, because of the number of employees, because of the ability to have fewer techs working but they, they have more bays to themselves, more hoists, more places to work on cars that they can run a car in, inspect it, help build an estimate, leave it there, bring in another one, same thing over and over. And then, you know, at some point they start getting okays to do the repairs and they've saved significant amount of money, your money, because they don't have to burn time running cars in and out or taking them apart to look at putting them back together, getting them out the door. So there are some things about a larger facility that save money. And again, you don't know each individual situation either. When did they buy this big shop? Has it been in the family for 50 years? They don't have any overhead other than taxes and, you know, maybe some, but not mm-hmm. like somebody that just bought the smaller shop two years ago. So it was just, it was so infuriating listening to this and people are sitting there watching that, just eating this stuff up. Like, Oh yeah, you're right. I got to go to the little guy. And that's not anti little guy at all. I, Mm -hmm. I am pro anybody that takes this stuff seriously and works very hard to become competent and remain competent. And is just honest, honest with themselves, honest with their clients. I don't care how big the shop is. That's all I care about is honesty and taking this career to heart and and the whole thing, like the whole trade, the whole profession is that, that it's important to them to lift the whole profession, do their part. So Yeah. yeah, I guess my argument to her is like the physical size doesn't really matter where we become more expensive is uh, because of, I think just the the equipment, the capability we have is quite a bit, I think quite a bit higher than most. And not just, not just where we live, just I think in general, nationwide, shops like Riverside, not just Riverside, but shops like Riverside. And there's others that are far, far more capable than us. You know, that's what differentiates a lot of that. And then, you know, what's, What's the situation with the employees and their compensation and their benefits plans? You know, you may find out the the big shop down the street that's less per hour 
you know, their techs, they're, they're on a, you know, like in and out or that just get rid of them. Turnstile, like, you know, just mm-hmm. revolving door. And right. then you find the more expensive shop, quote unquote, it's really quote unquote more expensive. Has techs that have been there, employees that have been there for decades. And then the other thing with that, anything, is sometimes you don't really find out what the real value of your investment, because that's what it is. When you bring your vehicle in to any repair shop, it's an investment. You don't, sometimes you don't find out the value of that investment until things go sideways. So, you know, you brought your vehicle in before the, the big trip, summer, getting everybody in the car. You know, we're taking the tribe, <laughs> we're taking the tribe on a quest, right? We got the family truckster in the riverside. You leave Minnesota and you make it to just the edge of Montana and things go to hell in a handbasket. And that might be when you figure out and learn the value of that investment. Because, yeah, you saved a lot of money going elsewhere. But now things hit the fan and you're on your own. You spent more elsewhere and Maybe it was Riverside, maybe it was wherever. And it's not painless, but it's way less painless than it could be because they got your back. They are working with whatever company to get you hooked up with, you know, a tow truck, a a reputable shop in that area. You know, you may end up with very little to no money out of your pocket. You can't, you know, you're losing time and that's trying to refund people time. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. If I do... I'm going to write a book. Well, and and Matt is taking the Riverside Airwolf helicopter out to the edge <laughs> of Montana to service it for you. I mean, that's what I've learned about Riverside is that, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got rid the of kind the Blue of, Thunder helicopter. We that's got the kind of service you guys provide. But yeah. but you're right. I mean, and and honestly, I don't think you either, you, you're actually not getting the credit because say you're, you're going out to Yellowstone, right? Like you said, if you're traveling from Minnesota to Yellowstone and you do break down by Montana, you're going to say, well, that shop didn't do their job. But if you do make it to Yellowstone and back, I don't know that you're necessarily getting the credit either, right? Like no. yeah. Riverside's the reason I had a great vacation. Or you're, just it, contributed, hopefully contributed to it, right? Right. That kind of leads to another question, I think. Assuming you have a relationship now with a shop, whatever shop that is, as a, as a vehicle owner and a consumer of car maintenance and repair, you, you have this however long, I'm, I'm guessing it would be years, that you have a trust level built up, like a good trust level built up with a shop, a mechanic. What happens in your mind, and I don't know, maybe you're a bad person to ask, but what happens? I think you can speak for a lot of people. What happens when things go awry? And let's just say it's the mechanic's fault. Let's, let's say you brought your vehicle to Riverside and whatever, I fixed something, quote unquote, fixed something. And away you go, and maybe it's on a trip, maybe it's just back and forth to work, but whatever I did failed and it was my fault. How yep. does that, in your mind, what does that do to the trust level? Does it evaporate? Is it, no, I mean, I'm just going to let, I don't want to give you like multiple choice answers. <laughs> just let you go yeah. for it. Well, 
yeah, I think that's also a double-edged sword, right? Because if I come back and say, you know, you said that the brakes were fixed, that the squealing was gone, right? And I got to work and it was still making that noise and worse, right? And I had to have it towed to a different shop and whatever. And I go back and I talk to your shop. I think it's a double-edged sword because, you know, the, the tech who talks to me, you know, can say, oh man, I, I thought I had that fixed, but I did have some doubts in my mind about if I should have done this part as well to make sure it was fortified or something like that. You know, the honesty level I mean, I want to hear, like, an apology, or I want to hear, like, this is how, this is why I did what I did, and I'm sorry that, you know, you had to have it towed to a different shop or whatever, and then I think that's probably up, up to the, up to the customer, and probably their level of, of, you know, it's probably just a, a personality thing, right? Because if you're honest with me, I would like to say, I believe you, and I'm going to put my faith in you again. But I'm sure there are people out there, too, that are going to say, well, you messed it up this time. What's to say you're not going to mess it up next time? That I mean, I appreciate the apology, but uh, I just can't trust you anymore. So, I, you know, I, I know the dealings that I've had with your shop when something has been more than they expected, right? They got it back, they they did the work, but then they found something else. Before they move forward, they're letting me know, this is what else we're seeing. This is how much it will be. They're really pulling that curtain back and saying, pretty well, you know, most of the time I feel pretty confident and to understand what they're telling me, you know, and I think that's a big key to it too, is taking it out of the technical jargon and putting it into the layman's terms. And I would say that's the same thing when I try to talk with parents about their child, right? If they're in my classroom, I don't want to give them all this um, technical stuff that they might not understand, right? I might just say, your uh, child is needing this to be a better reader, right? I don't want to tell them all the different phonic skills or different things that just our teacher talk. I want to tell them as a parent, like a friend speaking to a friend, right? And so I I really think that, uh, you know, for me, I think the best thing your shop can do is to be honest and say, you know what, we messed up here. And I know your shop in particular, and that's the reason I go back there, is that there seem to be a straight shooter with me. They give me the information that I'm looking for. And they also pull back a little bit of that and tell me, in terms that I can understand, here's why you need to do this because it's going to help with this along the way, even though it will cost more. I think that this would be the better way to do it. So yeah, I mean, I, I like to believe that honesty is always the best policy, right? We, we heard that, but I think over time that does prove out, right? I think yeah. you, once you get that established that you're also honest, if a mistake happens, that's going to come out as well in your reviews, in the word around town. You know what? Matt did this that time, but then they made it right. They, they, they brought it in and they made it right. They said the next time you need something, bring it in here. We want to prove to you that we want your business and that you're very valued to our, our whole business. 
Yeah, I, I think the reputation of a business in our discussion, the shop is invaluable. I don't know how you put a monetary value on it other than it's the value of the operation. Therefore, trying to protect that reputation in general, far, far more often than not, I think it's just being honest. In this case, there's human error. In this case, it was an ac- it was an accident, human error, or this was a just a flat out mistake, bad judgment. It kind of leads to another question that's, that's somewhat similar. We had talked a little bit about the medical um, profession, and there's some parallels to auto repair that you just can't ignore. It's a good parallel. One of them I find interesting, and I, I really want to hear your take on this, uh, is we'll go with the sore throat thing again. You go in, the diagnosis is, you know, you have a bacterial infection. Here's a prescription for the antibiotics. And, you know, if you're not better in two weeks, let us know. And then two weeks goes by and I go back and it's not a bacterial infection. It's something else. Who cares what? So there's a misdiagnosis that I spent money on to get better and it didn't work. And now I have to pay them again to check me out, to come up with another diagnosis and hopefully a treatment that works. So the way the medical field frames it is you're, you're paying them money for these tests and the doctor themselves may not actually perform the tests. It's, you know, whatever a technician, uh, a nurse, something of that nature is doing the, whatever the swab, the, the blood tests, whatever. And then they, the labs, they do, they interpret those results, come up with a diagnosis and then a treatment plan. You take your car to a repair shop and you pay a diagnostic fee and they do some tests, come up with a diagnosis, a treatment plan. But what if it doesn't work? What if you bring your car to me, you know, Matt, it doesn't run right. Okay, check it out. Boom, boom, boom. I think I think it needs a tune-up. It needs spark plugs. You'll be good to go. We do the tune-up, and then either I call you back right away, yeah, that didn't work, or you take it, and a week later, two weeks later, it's doing the same thing again. And now, usually in auto repair, if we deem it that we misdiagnosed it, we don't charge you again. And in a way, I find that, in a way, I find that fundamentally wrong. <laughs> so I guess the question is, I'm not trying to lead you or anything. What is your take on that? And then when you're paying that fee, what do you feel like you're paying us for? If, if that makes sense. And if you need me to elaborate, I'll gladly elaborate. Well, from my perspective, I think, you know, whenever I take my car in, I realize that it's a complex machine, right? I, re- I realize that if the check engine light is on, I'm going to have to have you take the scan tool to hook it up and run the codes or pull the codes and to pinpoint why is this light on, right? And then I'm relying on your expertise to tell me what the codes mean and what you think is probably happening here. Is it, you know, the oxygen intake that's 
that's not running that's not making it run right or you know is something else seizing up or is it is something malfunctioning so that i mean in that way i do understand and and try to have i don't want to call it sympathy but understanding right it's an understanding of this is a complex machine that they're trying to diagnose and fix and so i don't know i i mean i guess i don't look at the itemized bill as closely as probably some people would um, to say, oh, I see you charged me for three diagnoses here, right? Like, uh, why? But I would say that I think if that's explained, I I think that's one one of the places that probably the industry could do better is to explain to the customers right away. Like when you come in with a, a check engine light on or something that's malfunctioning, this is a complex machine and you don't want to talk down to us, right? You don't want to talk down to the customer, but just saying that we're going to try our best to diagnose it the first time. And, you know, I'm confident that we're going to be able to figure out what's going on, but it may take us a little while, right? It may take us a little time to figure out what's going on. Uh, I think that's, you know, people in my position, I bet there's a lot of us, that are feeling stressed when we come in the door to start with. And we just want to get back on the road, right? We just, this is, this is our, a lot of people's lifeline, right? Like to go to work, to go to visit family, whatever it is, right? A car is, is really integral to a society. And so when they come in the shop and they, <laughs> And our immediate gratification society we live in too, right? Like this should be, just tell me that it's going to be done in an hour and so I can come back and I'll just wait over here. You guys will have this done, right? I, I got to believe a lot of the listeners are thinking to themselves right now, you're, you're tainted. You're, mm-hmm. you're tainted with knowledge because you're, yep. you're talking almost too educated. <laughs> right away, you're calling your car a complex machine. And in believing it, knowing that, and that what you say about what the what the profession could do better in communicating is for one is we got to start using uh, better vocabulary. Like you're, we misuse the word diagnosis. You're paying me for a diagnosis, and that right away I think devalues us just immediately because if I tell you, Scott, I'm going to charge you a diagnostic fee. That's a flat fee. In my mind, that is going to pay for X amount of time to let me do whatever tests I want in that allotted amount of time. And those tests are what are going, I'm going to analyze the results of those tests to come up with a diagnosis. In your mind, you're paying me for an answer. To go back a little bit to the medical field, you're paying them for a series of tests that will lead to a diagnosis. And I have to I think our profession has to be a lot better about conveying that to you that you're paying us for an answer. Yes, but not like specifically you're paying us for a series of tests as determined by our technician, our mechanic that he or she comes up with for your given symptoms or complaints. They come up with a test plan. You're paying them for that test plan that will hopefully lead them to a diagnosis. And then but that's not what you're, you know, you're paying us for the tests, not so much for the diagnosis, but I think we have done such a horrific job of 
that communication. And then, you know, we got the stuff online going on and YouTube and whatnot that don't help because it's too easy to believe that you, you bring your car in, especially with the complaint of a check engine light. Well, man, I just plugged the machine in, plugged the scan tool in. That tells me it was wrong. And you already know different. So, you know, mm-hmm. your opinion doesn't mean squat. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. But I think you bring up a lot of really valuable points. Yeah. Something to something from my perspective, you know, is I don't think that there's enough knowledge out there of what what people are even dealing with when they think about their car. I think that they there there are clueless, you know, and I am tainted in a in a lot of respects because I have <laughs> not only talked with you, but sat out there on Christmas Eve with my dad around a semi engine, right? And and watched him struggle to fix it for two and a half hours. And so I and I think a lot of people don't even have that you know, in their, any kind of reality that they deal with of trying to sit there and take something apart and fix it for two and a half hours. You know, I, I've pretty much come to the realization that when I take my car into the shop, unless it's an oil change or a tire rotation, if it's something where you have to diagnose it, I'm expecting a full day, right? Because I know not only do you have my car, you've got other cars that you're dealing with. And then you have to diagnose it. You have to get the parts. You have to do this. You have to contact me that you're going to be contacting me to say, this is what we're doing before you can go forward with it. You know, there's just a lot of, a lot of pieces there that I don't think people understand. And I don't know if that's because they're getting a quick fix somewhere else uh, in their, you know, experiences. Are they going into a, a dealership where the dealership is getting it fixed faster? Or are they just thinking from that perspective of an oil change, right? An oil change only takes 20 minutes. Why doesn't, you know, fixing the uh, head gasket <laughs> take 20 minutes, you know, because it's, it's just a gasket. I know what a gasket is. I got one on my water bottle, right? Like I can take that out. I can put it back in. Isn't it the same concept? What, what, you know, so there's just a lot of disconnect and yeah, I think that's where the industry probably at least independent shops and stuff can probably, you know, make their clients, make their clientele a lot more knowledgeable coming in the door. Like when I do a service or when I do a diagnosis, this is what this is what we're doing. You know, this is what I'm looking for and this is what it this is what this process looks like because I don't think a lot of people understand that the whole process, you know. What I've determined now is I probably need to have you on again. Once again, I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and talk about these things. I do not feel like there's enough uh, of the customer perspective out there for our consumption to help us better serve you better improve or enhance that experience of having your vehicle serviced repaired because it's really not money you want to part with too much and it's certainly not if you're going to part with your money it's probably not one of the top uh, five or ten things you would like to be spending that money on so i do really really appreciate a just coming on here and visiting with me uh, two, I'm not blowing smoke up your tail. I really appreciate your fresh friendship over the years. The nice things you've said, uh, even though I paid dearly for that, 
I appreciate how well you. My best friends that. call me Cash, so <laughs> that's um, what the check says on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just appreciate the you know trusting me enough to bring me on and and get my perspective of it because I think yeah I think you're right that people don't don't expect to spend money anymore on their car when they have a car I think that that's there's a disconnect there too with our society is um, they realize that they have to pay money up front for a car I'm not sure how many you know kids or young adults these days are getting told when you buy a car you're gonna have all this other thing stuff to possibly worry about right I, I think that there's some of that too going on because i know yeah it's just something that i was taught but i'm not sure how many people are actually taught that right like there's upkeep maintenance yeah they don't get they don't get it conveyed to them or communicated to them that it's almost like a subscription um but my fear is and i don't know if fear is quite the right word but i i guess i have some concerns that down the road and not that far down the road you will not necessarily be buying a car. You'll be subscribing to a car and maybe even before autonomous vehicles reach that level of where you maybe don't own your car anymore. You almost like an app or an Uber type thing where you order your car to show up or the community car to show up so you can go to work, go to the grocery store or whatever. And it just hits you X amount of dollars for that where Maybe there's going to be car subscriptions. I know they tried it in the not too distant past and it didn't go over too well. But I think I think people have been trained more and more about subscription services like how we consume entertainment, our cell phones. You know, it's pretty rare you buy a cell phone and then buy a plan or subscribe to a plan. It's usually kind of all linked up together. Uh, so I have a feeling... That may just happen. But honestly, the way things are right now, yes, you, you buy your vehicle, but you should be in the back of your head treating it a little bit like a subscription where you're making your car payment every month. And, and then you have to assume it's a machine, right? It's going to break. Mm-hmm. Just even some money in a fund to cover those repairs. Uh, even if it doesn't cover it all, it just takes a big chunk out of it would help yeah. immensely, but that, that is not, you're right, absolutely right. That is not conveyed uh, to people in general. I won't even pick on kids, just people in general just do not think of things that way. And it isn't just their vehicles. It's the houses. It's, it's everything. Yeah. This but, is another one of those cases, I think too, where, you know, technology, people think that it's, we've advanced technology so much that it shouldn't break. Right. Yeah. This is another place in our society where we just, it's the, it's 2022 now. So why why would a car break? If I spend $35,000 on a car, I better not have to bring it in, you know. You it, got a screaming deal on a car or it was used, but <laughs> 35,000, I don't know, is that getting into much anymore? Holy cow. It's my new it's my new Saturn. <laughs> I have complete faith and I definitely thank you too. And, um, yeah, I look forward to chatting again soon. That was my best friend, Scott Alton. Childhood friends, we still remain friends. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. I, there's now a email address for the podcast. It's mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any 
episode ideas, if you want to be on the podcast, please do not hesitate to reach out to me via that email, or you can find me on Facebook. And I really look forward to talking to you guys again. Take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.